Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here in these podcasts. As you may know, 10 days or so ago, we had our 2019 Church Society Day Conference and also our annual general meeting. Our conference this year was on the theme of redeeming love and faith, sexuality and the good news for the Church of England. And later in this podcast, we'll be hearing uh, from some of the talks that we had on the day. It's a really great day of teaching, uh, helping us to think about uh, what the Bible uh, teaches about sex and sexuality, how we can be better at pastoring people in this area, giving us a vision for um, what our sex and sexuality is for in God's eternal purposes. And then finally, ending up with uh, Lee Gatiss helping us to see how and why it's so important that we are contending for the faith on this issue in the Church of England at the moment. But before we get to that, I just want to let you know a couple of things that went on at the AGM. Uh, We were able to announce the appointment of two new regional directors for church society. Some of you may know that we've been looking over the last year or so to appoint another associate director uh, in a similar uh, kind of role to mine, although with different responsibilities. Um, We haven't been able to do that for various reasons, but we're really excited that actually what has opened up is the possibility of appointing uh, these two regional directors on a part-time basis. Uh, So both of them are incumbents and will continue to serve in their local churches, but also uh, be freed up to give some time uh, to working with church society. So that's uh, Mark Wallace, who's a vicar in Colchester, his two parishes uh, in Colchester Town Centre in Essex, and George Crowder, who is a vicar of a church in Cheshire. So it kind of works, uh, obviously, uh, that Mark is in Essex in the south of the country and George in Cheshire, uh, sort of uh, in the, the north of the country. And we hope that both of them will be able to take on some of the work we've been looking to expand into, particularly Uh, building uh, better networks and partnerships, uh, visiting uh, local groups and diocesan groups and getting to know what are some of the the sort of local issues that people are dealing with on the ground. And also particularly being able to offer support to people who are ministering in smaller churches, rural churches, churches that haven't traditionally had an evangelical kind of ministry, churches that are particularly challenging uh, for one reason or another. Uh, We've had a a real burden uh, on Church Society Council uh, for at least the last three or four years uh, to be doing more to serve people in those kinds of uh, parishes uh, and places. And we hope that uh, the appointment of these two new regional directors uh, will help us to be able to do a lot more of that work. You can find out more about both uh, Mark and George on our website. And if you're interested in knowing a bit more about what they will be doing, uh, stay tuned. I'm hoping to record a podcast episode with them both in a few weeks time. We also were able to announce uh, at the AGM uh, that we've been uh, considering on council for the last year or so uh, various things that the uh, AGM had set before us uh, this time last year. One of those was to do with staffing, uh, somewhere to do with um, issues around a statement of faith, uh, which we've made some progress on, but no real changes to report yet. 
around partnership uh, with other organisations. And again, some progress has been made in terms of conversations and, and discussions around that, but no real uh, changes of substance to note. But one other thing that the AGM asked us to consider was the issue of uh, the name of our organisation since we had the merger with Refer Reform and Fellowship of Word and Spirit. And, and in general, our, our sort of uh, our name and our branding and our identity of who we are and what we do. We had uh, lengthy discussions about all kinds of things on council last year. We um, met for an additional 24-hour uh, residential conference. Uh, we had various subcommittees looking at different things, including one looking at this whole issue of name and branding. And in the end, uh, council agreed that, that it wasn't appropriate uh, to simply uh, adopt a new name uh, or um, uh, logo and branding at this point until we've really worked out what this new organisation is going to look like and we're really clear on, on the goals for that. Actually, adopting a new name and a new branding is something um, that takes quite a lot of, of time and uh, is a big financial commitment as well and it seemed foolish to rush into that. Uh, but we have worked on uh, adopting a new strapline and slogan for church society, which we think better encapsulate what our new organisation is going to be doing uh, and what that involves. So our new strapline, Church Society, where we used to be building on the foundations, and, and indeed we are still building on foundations, but our new strapline is equipping God's people to live God's word. And one of the things that came out in quite a lot of our discussions was actually Church Society is not a church. We are not the front line uh, of doing God's work and building God's kingdom in this country. And our role really is one step back from that, equipping and resourcing and supporting and strengthening. And so we thought it was appropriate to have a strapline uh, that really makes that clear. We're equipping God's people to live God's word, but actually it is God's people out in churches all over the country uh, who need to be living out God's word. And our new slogan articulates that as well. So we are a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. We wanted to convey the idea that we are a fellowship, as Fellowship of Word and Spirit had uh, front and centre in their name. We are a fellowship. We are working together. We're a network and a partnership of people uh, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, who share their identity together. And actually, we want to express that fellowship through things like praying for one another, meeting together at conferences. We're a fellowship with a particular purpose, contending to reform and renew the Church of England. We have a particular focus for our activities, which is the Church of England. Uh, we're part of the, the worldwide Anglican Communion, but our focus is particularly uh, on the Church of England here in this country. Uh, and working to see, uh, as with every reformed church, that it is constantly uh, reforming and renewing. And of course, those of you uh, who are involved with uh, the Church of England's various structures and hierarchies will recognise that phrase reform and renew as part of an agenda uh, that the Church of England has set. And we think that's a good agenda, but it needs to be reforming and renewing in biblical faith. And so that is what we will be contending for. Yes, at General Synod, but up and down the country, every time the Bible is opened and faithfully taught, we're contending for biblical faith in the Church of England.
So you'll notice those uh, strapline and slogan on our website and uh, in various places uh, from now on. And we hope uh, that that will help uh, people have a clearer sense of who Church Society is and what it is we're seeking to do. Anyway, back to the conference. And we began with Bishop Keith Sinclair. Keith is the Bishop of Birkenhead, uh, and he uh, set the tone for the day, really, by outlining in, in sort of majestic terms the great sweep of the Bible's teaching on sex and sexuality all the way through uh, from Genesis 1 to the end of the book of Revelation. You can listen to all the talks uh, in full uh, via the resources section of the Church Society website, but I'm just going to give you a little flavour of the day on this episode of the podcast. So here's uh, Bishop Keith. The goodness of God's gift, the glory and profundity and the blessing is what we're to receive. And though we are all affected by the fall and by sin, we're all capable of knowing the reality of the resurrection life of Jesus. This doesn't mean we don't hear the strict words even of Jesus, for example, on divorce and letting God come to us in the difficult difficulties of this. It is difficult. But we, in that place, discover the grace of God meeting us and saving us. So just as I finish with one or two comments about our contemporary situation, what then of Christians who believe they must self-identify as gay and that God does not love, and, and who say God doesn't love them? Well, I hope we can see in the Bible that God's love and promise extends to the whole of creation, Gentiles as well as Israel, and that same spirit is given to all in Christ, as well as the rebuke and warning, but the gift and invitation is to everybody without exception. As part of the shared conversation, I've been a, in one or two of those experiences over the last few years, and uh, I just was thinking of a particular one in the Scottish Episcopal Church where I was asked a few years ago to attend before the recent conversation, so you can tell how effective I was. Um, uh, I was asked in the group by a, a gay Christian in one of the churches, he said to me, what would be lost if the church accepted same practice, sex practice? Quite a good question. Uh, and... Uh, it was even then, uh, I think, a year or two before we knew whether same-sex marriage was coming. And I didn't give an immediate answer because I wanted to listen and think about that. Um, but uh, as I was just praying and thinking overnight, I came back the following day and I just, I came back to, with this one word answer, really. What would be lost? Obedience would be lost. <laughs> the one quality the Lord God needed in Eden for the relationship of the man and the woman with him and the creation to flourish. Obedience leads to disobedience leads to distance and distortion and in the end destruction. But if you want that wonderful inclusio in Romans at the beginning end, what is it that we're called to? The obedience of faith. Such a simple point, but such an important one. What would be lost if we were to accept same sex marriage? Obedience would be lost. Of course, for many people, the call to biblical sexual morality involves a great deal of loss, one way or another. And in our second session of the day, Reverend Ian Baker, who's a trustee of the True Freedom Trust, helped us to think through how we can pastor 
people in this whole area of sexuality yesterday with same-sex attraction but uh, sexuality more broadly as an area uh, for sin and immorality in our lives how we can be more tender and more loving uh, while still being uncompromising on the truth that we have to proclaim here's just a, a sample of some of what Ian had to say to us have confidence in the gospel Secondly, make sure it is the gospel because it's very easy to communicate a different message. I think it's very easy to become a Pharisee. And I'm just going to put a health warning out now. This is the, one of the scary bits of the talk. You might want to put a seatbelt on. This is the challenging bit because I think we can care more about behavior than salvation. Let me illustrate what I mean by asking you, do you rent out your church hall? Do you let out your church hall, you know, for parties and for, you know, celebrations, that kind of thing? Let me ask you, would you let it out to a gay couple? They phoned you up and they said they were gay and they want an event, a birthday party. Not, I'm not talking about a wedding, I'm not talking about a blessing, just a birthday party, an event. Would you hire it out to them? I guess for many of us, the instinct is to say no. No, I wouldn't. Because it would sort of imply I was accepting them or, or blessing their relationship in some way. But the question is, it was asked in the first session, the question is, are you being consistent? If you turn down someone for the way they behave, are you consistent? If you turn them away because of the way they live, are you consistent? So will you also turn down a party where one of the couples, it's, it's, it's a second marriage, they've divorced and remarried? Will you turn away a party if you think they're going to eat too much? Will you turn away a party if they may gossip over the meal? Probably not. But those are sins, aren't they? Serious sins listed among homosexual activity as sins to uh, condemn in the, in the New Testament. They're condemned alongside gay sex in the New Testament. So why, why refuse the gay couple but not the other events? That's prejudice, isn't it? That's discrimination, isn't it? The law would be right, wouldn't it, to say we're acting in a discriminatory way, wouldn't it? Isn't the real problem, we don't want them, we don't want the gay couple, because somehow we've assumed that their sin, their sin is worse than other sins, they're worse sinners. Isn't that what's going on in our minds? And in which case, isn't that how the Pharisees acted? They wanted to eat with people, but they only wanted to eat with people like them, with nice people. The message is that only people who behave like me are welcome here. Only people who are, who are nice like me and who, with my respectable sins, they're, they're welcome here. With my sins. The real sinners, the gay couple, they can, they can stay away from this church. And the gay couple, how do they respond to our rejection? They reject us, don't they? We've just confirmed their expectations and they harden themselves just a bit more or a lot more against the church, against us, against Christians, against the gospel, against Jesus. And have they taken offense at Jesus? Have they been offended by the gospel? No. They haven't heard about Jesus. They've just rejected us as we've shut the door in their face. They've rejected us and rejected Jesus because of our judgmentalism. Now, sure, 
What's the alternative? If we host the party, if we welcome them in, it might confuse people. What will people think? What will our own congregation members think? But when Jesus ate with sinners and prostitutes, was he bothered by what people thought? Did he worry what people thought? Did he worry people might think he was, by implication, blessing them in some way? Them and their moral, immoral lives? No, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what, what if? What if you did hire out your church hall to the gay couple? People would be surprised, yes. Because they know we hate the gays. They know that. But we might then have an opportunity, mightn't we, to talk to them? Talk about why we're not rejecting them, how we love all people, how God is passionate for all people, how we're not actually interested in behavior and how people live. We're interested in the Savior, in Jesus, who, who comes to say, come and follow me. Because there's a God who loves us so much that he died for us. And suddenly we're talking about the gospel, aren't we? We're not talking about their sin. We're talking about Jesus, aren't we? We're sharing the gospel. Now they may still reject Jesus. I mean, gosh, it's only hiring a hall. It's not... It's not uh, Christianity explored, but they, they may still reject Jesus. But at least they've heard about Jesus and not our judgment. It may be a, a first step, just a, one more step in them investigating Christianity because they've received grace and welcome, rather door shut in their face. Now I want to be clear, I'm not saying, I'm absolutely not saying we should do gay marriage, gay blessings, same-sex weddings in any way. No, there should be no prayers, no blessing, no, no, nothing to even hint that God is going to bless sin. We must always say no that, to that. Just like we have to say no sometimes to some heterosexual couples who want to get married. We have to say no sometimes, and it's hard. But actually, even saying no can be, I think, a gospel opportunity. If I ever have to have a couple phone up and I ask a couple of questions. They want to get married. Oh, do you live in the parish? Yes, we live in the parish. Have either of you been married before? Well, actually, yes, one of us has. I said, oh, let me just pop around and have a chat. I could just say, I'm sorry, we don't marry divorced people and put the phone down. They get the door of judgment slammed in their face. But I go around and I sit down with the same. Let, let me tell you about me and what I believe, why I'm a Christian. I explain who Jesus is and why he matters to me, how he died for me, how that's significant, how forgiven, forgiven I am, why that's so important, him rising, that he's my God, I follow him and obey him. So I, just a quick outline of the gospel, why Jesus matters to me. And I want to hear their story, but actually before even I hear the story, I, say, I just pass a Bible to them, open at Matthew 19, and I say, look, I have to follow Jesus on this. He's my Lord, he's my God, I want to obey him. Look, here's Matthew 19. Here's what Jesus says about marriage, divorce, and remote. And I explain the passage. And I say, okay, I don't know your situation. I'm not here to judge you. You tell me what I should do. I got this off a wise older minister a few years ago. I just think it's brilliant because it's not confronting them and saying no. It's asking them to meet Jesus, hear about his grace, and then say, what do you think I should do in this situation. And it's not happened in Kids Grove yet, but if a gay couple phoned me up and said, we'd like to have a wedding, I wouldn't just say, we don't do weddings of gay people and slam the door. I'd go around and see them. And I'd do the same thing. I'd explain about who Jesus is and why I obey him and love him. And then open up, I don't know, 1 Corinthians 6 or another passage and just try to explain it to them and say, what do you think I should do? So they're hearing Jesus. 
I'm sure they'll still hear rejection. I'm sure it'll be painful and difficult. But at least they've heard something of Jesus and not just judgment. The phone slammed down, the door shut in their face. I'm not blessing their relationship. I'm trying to show hospitality where I can, to eat with sinners where I can and explain what I can. Because closing the door in judgment, that doesn't sound like the gospel to me. One of the things that I think is uh, noticeable as a change over the last 20 to 30 years is that it's not just the world who are uh, moving away from the Bible's teaching on sexuality, but increasingly Christians, people in our churches, are finding uh, that what the Bible teaches doesn't sit with their experience of life in the world and what they feel about it. And I think one of the things uh, that uh, a number of people have been challenging the church to do in the last few years is find a better way of communicating what the Bible really does teach about sex and sexuality, that it's not all simply about rules, who you can sleep with and and when and, and in what way, but actually that it's something much more powerful and much more positive than that. And that's what I was trying to do in my talk uh, on the uh, day of the conference, uh, Sex in the Heavenly City, helping us to have a sense of where sex fits within God's eternal purposes uh, for his people and his world. Sex is fleeting. It always ends. And, of course, the end is sort of the point of sex. It's almost as if it's not designed to provide true satisfaction after all. It's almost as if it's designed to leave us wanting more. And indeed it is. It is supposed to make us look forward. It is supposed to make us long for a consummation that won't be over just like that, but a consummation that will last. It is meant to make us look forward to the new creation. When united with Christ by faith, we will be drawn into that eternal, mutual, loving, indwelling relationship with God himself. When we will finally get to experience the reality of which human sex is only the shadow. Above, above all then, I think this is what sex is really for. It's not primarily for procreation or primarily for pleasure in the present moment. It is preparation for our future. All our sexual experiences are designed to make us into the bride who we saw in the Song of Songs, who sits and gazes over the mountains, longing for the first glimpse of her bridegroom. The betrothed woman who cannot wait for her wedding day who desires above all things the consummation of her marriage. So I want to say whatever is good about your sex life now, it is transient. The pleasure of an orgasm does not last. At best, which is to say in the context of a loving heterosexual marriage which lasts a lifetime, at best... A happy and healthy sex life can only help to build that relationship and make it flourish for a little while. All marriages end. 
all marriages end. And so whatever joy and delight you find in sex now, that should only make you long for a better and more lasting satisfaction. Whatever is not good about your sex life now is only transient. Whatever pain and frustration you find in sex should only make you long for something better. Whether you are single and sad, whether you are same-sex attracted and frustrated or angry, whether you are a survivor of sexual abuse and frankly terrified, whether you suffer from sexual dysfunction and are ashamed, whether you know you've made mistakes in the past or are still caught up in sexual sin in the present. Whatever it is about this broken, fallen world that stops you from experiencing sexual fulfillment now should make you long for the day when you will be truly satisfied, truly happy, truly intimate, truly free from fear. And on that day, it's not the case that there will be no sex. We know there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage, as Jesus explained to the Sadducees, but that is because there will be the ultimate marriage, the marriage for which our human marriages are just weak shadows and signs. And in that ultimate eternal marriage, there will be the ultimate experience of everything that sex was designed to be. So no, I don't think we will be having sex with each other in the new creation. But I'm also sure that we won't be looking back. No one will be wistfully remembering those messy momentary sexual encounters of this world any more than we will be looking back wishing for animal sacrifices or the passing glories of Solomon's temple. We will have Christ We will have Christ the Lamb who was slain, Christ the temple and our great high priest, Christ our heavenly bridegroom. We won't be having sex with each other, but we will be closer than that because we will be perfectly united in Christ. We won't be having physical sexual intercourse, but we will be having true and better intercourse with one another and with God himself, eternally enjoying that passionate and tender and intimate and loving indwelling which Christ calls us into by faith. So there's our better story. It's God's better story in which sex is of eternal and cosmic significance and in which sex is merely a weak and temporary shadow of the reality that is to come. You and I are not at the end of this story. And so as we read the Bible, we should be feeling that longing and desire. We shouldn't be satisfied with what we have now. We should be frustrated and impatient and eager for our betrothal to come to an end and our wedding day to arrive, for our bridegroom to come and be with us and kiss us and love us. The end of the story is coming and it will be a fitting climax to all God's work of creation and revelation, redemption and restoration. It will be eternal and glorious 
intimate and joyful. It will be the greatest sex you've ever had. Lee Gatiss brought the conference to an end uh, with his presentation on the book of Jude, helping us to think about what it means to contend for the gospel and how we should be contending for the gospel with love and faith, uh, graciously and uh, wisely uh, in a manner that commends the gospel. I would encourage you to listen to his talk, Contending with Love and Faith, and the full version of all three of the talks. It was a really great conference, a really encouraging day. One of the conference, uh, one of the comments somebody made to me uh, at the end of the conference was that uh, although the, the subject matter of the conference was something that they'd heard before, it was just lovely to hear it uh, presented in a way that was gentle and tender and loving in a way that sometimes uh, we're so keen to to say the right thing and to tell people when they are wrong on this subject that it can be very abrasive and uh, unnecessarily hurtful causing offense that isn't the offense of the gospel but just us being offensive Um, so I really would encourage you uh, to take the time to go and uh, listen to those talks I will put the links uh, to the recordings of them on the blog post that goes together with this podcast. We'll be back again next week and uh, I'm talking to James Carey, he's been on the podcast before, and this time we're talking about Thomas Beckett uh, and what we can learn from his life and faith and death. Do you tune in again next time. <laughs>